It depends on how the AIs are implemented. If we think of AI and structure it and are constrained by laws and ethics to augment our workers, to respect and even prompt greater expertise, then industries should be fine. If instead we just let the forces of unfettered profit make decisions, I'm not sure anyone is safe. Everything I'm discussing here is not necessarily the opinion of my employer. It is me and me alone. Hi, Jacob here. Today, we have a really important topic to discuss. We are looking at what happens when technological progress makes us as a culture and society forget how to do things that were previously seen as a core skill. But rather than me talking about this, let's get back to the person whose voice you heard at the start of the show, Chris Nossel from IBM. You are listening to Designing the Robot Revolution with me, Jacob Magnol, and my co-host, David Griffith-Jones. And this is Chris Nossel. My name is Christopher Nossel, and in my day job, I run the Worldwide Design for AI Guild at IBM. Um, there, I'm not only running the guild, but also running a project that is dedicated to the topic that we're talking about today. I also am a nerd on many fronts. I keep a blog about interfaces in science fiction called sci-fi interfaces.com. That's associated with a book that I co-authored in 2017 called Make It So, Interface Design Lessons from Science Fiction, and have been doing design for the better part of 30 years now in many capacities as a business, small business owner, to being part of a consultancy and now to being in-house uh, at IBM. Chris, could you set out for the listeners, what do we mean by de-skilling? I thought actually a great place to start would be an anecdote. I think it was the Netherlands, but it might have been at an IXDA conference where I was on stage talking about AI. And during the Q&A section, one member of the audience stood up and asked, hey, aren't you worried that the more AI we have in the world, the less humans are going to be able to think. And I was, I had not thought about this question in any depth prior to this. And I was on stage and my fight or flight reflexes kicked in. And I was like, oh crap, I have to have an answer for this in front of hundreds of people. And fortunately, my brain is really good in those moments. And it pointed me to the broadest possible context, which is I responded by saying, have you eaten bread recently? Do you know how to sow wheat or do you know how to operate a mill? The answer for me is certainly no, I don't know those things. And yet I depend on bread. Civilization is a de-skilling machine. At a very simple level, the basic definition of de-skilling is anything that causes a person to lose a skill. And that sounds quite neutral when we say it like that. And technology tends to do it quite a lot. Even if we go back to the agricultural revolution, right, when we went from being hunters to being farmers, and then from being manual labor farmers to employing animals in that process, right, the invention of the yoke meant that we could harness an ox in order to plow the field. There were certainly physical things that one would have to do if you were dragging a plow over your shoulders, but that given a generation or two who were using oxen 
to do that same work, those skills were lost. It sounds pretty neutral on that simple version. But there's a more complex version that is coming to light right now with the advent of AI. And that is the systemic cause of the loss of skills, and especially in a given workforce. So we can go back to history and take a look at the Luddites who have been corporate washed into this caricature of what that movement was about at the time. Certainly when I was growing up and I heard the term Luddite, the way it was being conveyed was people who were unreasonably afraid of technology because we all know that the Luddites attacked looms in factories in France and in the UK. And that story was, oh, they were afraid of technology. Ha ha ha. Isn't that so silly? But in fact, what the Luddite movement was about was partially about the labor rights of the workers who were afraid that the mechanization of their skills meant that they would no longer have leverage in conversations with the business owners. And so the introduction of machines into what was once hand-done labor is a deliberate de-skilling, which is the complex version. And in fact, if you take a look at, if you just do a Google search for de-skilling, a lot of what will come up is a Marxist critique of technology, talking about the differences between capitalists who have a vested interest in treating the labor force as replaceable cogs and labor, no, we're humans with a standard of living and we want to have good lives. And part of our bargaining chips is our skill. So simple version is anything that causes you to lose a skill. More complex version is systemic causes of the loss of skills. One reason why we wanted to hear your thoughts on de-skilling is because we heard you speak about this a while back, and you suggested that artificial intelligence or AI might not just accelerate the de-skilling effect, but also transform how de-skilling occurs and how occupation impacts are affected. Could you unpack this complex phenomenon for us and help us understand the nuances of how AI might potentially change how de-skilling happens in a workforce compared to when other technologies have done the same. The speed at which AI and even AI agents are increasingly more powerful and available to us is mind-blowing, right? ChatGPT was only really came out around November of last yeah. year, and literally entire industries are pivoting to adjust to that. So yes, speed and scale are massive. And certainly the infrastructure is there for AI to both be an output for people, but also for people to use because it can hop onto phones. That sounds over anthropomorphized and I don't want to do that. People can access AI from their phones now. Right. And that means the world has access to it. So th there's a third aspect though, that I really want to point out that's important. And I think as important as the speed and the scale of AI. And that is that the technologies that preceded AI, and again, here I'm going all the way back to the agricultural revolution until now, hmm. were labor-saving devices, meaning physical force. So the yoke that we were talking about earlier saved the farmer from having to pull that plow themselves. A, another example, 
a mill would use water or wind to save somebody from having to push a pram in order to grind wheat. All those technologies saved physical labor, even like the automobile saved the horse, the horse's labor. But AI is a thought-saving technology, and that's where it's radically different. And in the context of de-skilling, it can mean that the habits of mind with which we do a thing become atrophied and we lose that skill of thought, which we've never faced quite as much culturally before. Scale and speed, yes, but also thought saving is a tricky and troubling one. Is it too early for us to see the effects of this de-skilling in certain professions? Or can we actually start to see things happening already so we can start to identify professions or industries where this is a specific threat? That is a fine question. And I'm going to give a caveat answer and then some other answers. The caveat is that de-skilling is not a moment in time. And so it doesn't, it rarely makes news, right? The loss of skill is never happens over a moment or even with the introduction of technology. It happens over like a generation of using a technology and no longer performing a skill or no longer performing a task, which de-skills the user. So it's really hard to say, uh, ah, here, yes, let's point a finger down and some journalists can say, we can see that effect now, which is part of why it's a hard concept to wrap your head around. There is a bit, there is an apocryphal story. I am going to do what I promised myself years ago I would never do. And that is to tell this story without a source because I have looked for the source in the recent past mm. and even gotten my team at IBM to try and help me find this source. And we cannot find it. I recall reading somewhere that in the 1950s, that there was an auto manufacturer who had introduced robots into a factory floor. And at first, the productivity gains on that factory floor were massive because robots were faster, more precise. And the people who used to do that work were now managing that work. And they could watch the factory floor. They knew how the things were supposed to get made. And so when things were trending poorly, they could stop the factory floor, correct what needed to be mm. corrected, get things back to moving. But when those people who used to do the job began to retire or to leave for morbid reasons, a new generation of robot managers came online. And even if they had a little while to apprentice, they no longer had that embodied knowledge of what it was to make the thing. And so they could not foresee when problems were coming. They could only respond. And they had a much harder time in recovering from problems on the factory floor. And so all of the productivity gains were lost and they scrapped that early robotic factory. We're back to it now because we're smarter. We have better technology and sort of things. And again, I cannot source this story. It is burned in my mind as if it is truth, might be apocryphal and I've looked for it and I can't find it. But let's take that as a fairy tale to exemplify how it takes a generation to lose a skill. And it's unlikely that that's going to make news because it's a hard story to tell. As you can tell, I'm like on minute five or whatever. The thing that does tend to get news is layoffs. That's a moment in time. That's that fits journalism. I don't know if you have heard this, but Buzzfeed news, having the title of Buzzfeed makes you think of 
listicles and meme articles, but they're, they won a Pulitzer. They spent a lot of money at BuzzFeed News in order to build up a solid journalistic practice. And in January, the parent company announced that they would be using AI-generated content. Late April-ish, BuzzFeed News announced that they would be closing shop. So layoffs tend to get the journalistic attention, but certainly that is related, where people who take AI to replace human labor is, is a much better story than the D or easier story to tell than the de-skilling one. But it points at that sort of speed and scale, the uh, concepts that we were talking about just before. Different occupations, knowledge work primarily. How sensitive are we as knowledge workers? If you had asked me a year ago, I would say journalists are never, ever going to be replaced. That's... <laughs> looking to be less and less certain as we go. I still feel like there is some merit to that standpoint. If we don't have journalists, it's very hard to trust the generative AI to do news well because we don't know what they do and why they do things. So in of itself, it's not really journalism. Yeah. And so <laughs> that introduces the important caveat to this answer, which is that we ought not to lose journalism, but even though individuals can have lots of foresight, as a species, we tend to be really reactive. People's livelihoods are on the line, and I don't want anyone in the audience to go, oh, I'm safe, I don't need to worry about this, or the opposite, oh my God, I'm under attack, when nothing comes of it. So please, I am not a prognosticator, I'm cautious about that. But given that as a species, we tend to be reactive and not proactive, and even as cultures, we tend to be reactive and not proactive. I suspect that's what's going to happen in the case of BuzzFeed News is that they are going to be using AI and plotting along because it's good enough for a lot of things until it's not. And there's some massive consequence. And then I suspect we're going to have to reinvent journalism again, right? Where we understand, oh, that's right. It's the fourth estate. We have to have it in order. And it has to be independent and well-funded and not funded by the government in order to keep corporations and governments honest and true to their word and accountable to their word. So I think that's going to be coming full, full circle. Unfortunately, there will be pain on the way there. But there's a more general question that you're asking, which is, right, what industries largely are safe? And even that answer depends because it depends on how we constrain business and how we even constrain normal citizens who are toying with like open source AI, right? If we had laws on the books that say, it says things like, hey, if you replace workers, you have to provide them job mortgages, which is a, it's a concept that's not talked about a lot now, but certainly as of 10 years ago, it was on people's minds. But that's the idea that if you replace somebody, you owe them money as a permanent retirement because you've replaced them with technology. Or UBI, a universal basic income. Uh, UBI is probably more of a help when jobs are replaced. Deskilling is a little more insidious because it just results in a race to the bottom. When we look at it from a Marxist perspective, the effects of deskilling are often a disempowering of the labor force. And that means a race to the bottom as far as salaries are concerned, 
a race to the bottom as far as other benefits, less leverage in labor negotiations, and so a lower quality of life. And even if we believe Daniel Pink, who speaks about autonomy, mastery, and purpose as being the keys to happiness in one's work life, the de-skilling begins to threaten mastery in a very significant way. Because if we wind up just being babysitters to an AI, we're not masters. We're not the actor. We're the supporting actor in the thing that's going on. It depends on how the AIs are implemented. Here we get to the design issue, right? If we think of AI and structure it and are constrained by laws and ethics to augment our workers, to respect and even prompt greater expertise, then industries should be fine. If instead we just let the forces of unfettered profit make decisions, I'm not sure anyone is safe. And honestly, I think it comes down to that difference. As a, certainly as a designer, my role in all this is to both design things that do augment humans rather than replace them, and to try and spread that as, as far and wide as I can, and even raise issues and awareness of this pernicious tendency of technology. The industries that I think are highly physical probably benefit themselves most to augmentation rather than replacements. Baking, ceramics, <laughs> mm. even though there are industrial versions of those same things, if we as citizens choose to spend our dollars, vote with our dollars for those handmade products and support those people, and that's a luxury because they're often a little more expensive, but that helps ensure that those very physical things aren't replaced by robots mm. and AI. We've spoke a lot about this when it comes to writing, me and David, that the analog in writing for a factory job is social media posts. And it turns oh, yeah. out that chat GPT does like exceedingly well. It's massively good at doing that. Where it's not so good is when you write a longer form article and try to make that intelligent and maybe not so connected to de-skilling, but are we at, and you, you can't prognosticize that or <laughs> future cast that, but that's the worry, right? That's the worry from all of us in knowledge work that we will come to a point where I don't actually have to bring an excellent draft and then churn through meticulously to create something that is actually both readable, but also has that agency that stems from my understanding of the topic. How do we process that in order to, <laughs> like, it, it's such a trauma to think about this. In, entirely. And we should caveat our conversation that ChatGPT is not good at it now. Right? Yeah. As we've talked about with the speed, there are certainly business incentives for open AI to make it better and better at long form writing. And so we could talk about the near term where whew, we wipe our brows of sweat and say, at least when it comes to long the New Yorker style articles, humans still rule the roost. But over time, that's going to be less and less true. 
I suspect large language models and foundation models, ChatGPT and IBM announced Watson X, which is its foundation models. And I'm eager to get my hands on it. But those, those technologies are going to improve over time. And we have to think about what does it mean? I think that from a cultural perspective, and deep fakes also touch into this, humans are going to have to build a bullshit detector that is hair trigger. I haven't seen a perfect generative AI yet. Mid-journey with its images, there's always something a little off about it. And even though artists, I'm sure, are going to respond to mid-journey in the way that artists of prior centuries responded to photography, there's that older story of painters thought that they're, or not thought, that's horrible framing, but let's go with it in light of anything else. Painters worked towards making photo real things in painting until photography came along. And then the question was, wait a minute, that thing can make a photo real perfect, a photo, a perfectly real representation or in the matter of minutes, why even have painters? And of course, the answer was shallowly color for a little while. And then we invented color photography and painting had to respond as an industry. And it was like, ah, oh, we can do things that that camera, that device cannot do. So abstract expressionism came along or even the painterliness of expressionism. Let's, let's let the medium speak out in ways that, that highlight its difference. And I suspect that image makers of the coming generation and of the present generation are having to respond to that now. Wow. If mid journey, for instance, can make these images so quick, what is it that I can do that it can't? And I suspect the same thing will happen with writing when it comes to just spitting out fast fact based articles, descriptions of sort of known domains. Why would we want a human to write that? I seem to recall that sports writing was fingered by some thinker as a really easy domain for AI because it's all so-and-so scored a goal in the third half. That's, that doesn't take a great deal of creative genius or even human agency to write. You're just reporting out basic facts. So both the topics that we write about and how we write about them, I suspect are going to have to respond. Hmm. I, again, I don't want to prognosticate about what that is, but I feel certain that pressure is on and that humans will respond in, in good ways to understand what it is that we can do that there, that the technology just is not. I have a higher level of confidence when it comes to artists to respond. But when we go to more critical jobs and professions for society and not to underestimate the importance of a healthy culture of artists. But well, if you, lower if, down in the Maslowian hierarchy, you're saying. Yeah. If you <laughs> More about at, our physical safety or food, yeah. Yeah, if you look at so civil engineers and architects, uh, like even lawyers, accountants, and we see a future where huge amounts of their work is taken, you have the first moral, ethical, political view on, is that acceptable? You can make arguments based on your political views and other views that actually... Do you know what? I believe in the free market. If it's cheaper to have automated civil engineers and architects, let that happen. Yep. And people lose their jobs, don't really care. It's the free market. Change jobs, go and do something else. That's a political thing. Yep. Two potential scenarios that come off of that. One is that it's gone, it's automated, but we're still able to understand what these AIs are doing. There's another 
scenario, which is maybe where we're heading towards right now, because we're not insisting on explainability, that we just, in this future, we don't even know how this civil engineer has come to that decision to build the bridge that way, and there's no way for us to do it. We're already there. Civilization, because of the specialization that it entails, already de-skills us in some fundamental ways. If my daughter, knock on wood, broke her arm, that's a horrible thing to say, but right, I have to head to the hospital. I do not know how to reset a cracked bone. But if we lived in the 1700s on a farm, hmm. the notion of rushing to the hospital w- would be ridiculous. There would be knowledge in the community or and hopefully in individuals on how to deal with those kinds of crises. But I live in a world now where I can reasonably expect to call an ambulance or to get to a hospital in order to deal with medical emergencies. So to some extent, yep, we're already there and we're all on a flying carpet called civilization that should the power grid go out or the worst, the worst threats of climate change come true, we're all a little bit screwed and only survivalists and the Amish are well situated to make it through that bottleneck. Let's first start there. (laughs) We're there and AI is only going to be another layer on top of that and on top of the technologies and even civilization, which we can talk about in this context as a technology in and of itself. So it's just another layer. As we talked about before, I'm a little worried about that layer because it's not a labor-saving device. It's a thought-saving device. But we do have to admit that there are some things that humans do which are tedious. And even if people are paid to do it now, Society doesn't have a great deal of benefit to having that be a manual thing. Here I'm thinking of things like lamp lighters, right? When street lamps were run by gas, there was a paid profession of somebody whose job it was to, at night or in the evenings, go up and light each lamp individually, or there, I guess it was a team of it. And then electricity came along and we could electrify that same light and we no longer have lamplighters, and we don't really bemoan the loss of lamplighting. But there's a picture that keeps running around the internet every now and then of a knocker-upper who who is somebody either with a long stick or with a pea shooter would ding the windows of people when it was time to get up. That was a job. It's no longer a job because we have alarm clocks, either mechanized or electrical, and nobody bemoans that loss either. So we do need to distinguish in our brains What are the things that we are okay with humans still doing? And that sounds like a judgment call, and I suspect it won't be a top-down decision. But somewhere in there, it'll fall out that we're like, no, we really want to keep this human, right? Nursing, we want that to be a human contact. I want a human to teach my young children in school and even pretty far up into their education, And I'm not sure we ever want that to really be just an AI thing. I think the free market is a dangerous or market essentialism is a dangerous way to let things go because that is what causes us to be reactive and reactive at the scale of AI is going to be disastrous. And in the context of de-skilling, it's going to happen to generate, it's like the boiling frog problem. And I don't mean to throw that out lightly. That's a Mm -hmm. metaphor that's pretty common here in the United States. Should I explicate it? Why not? The idea is that a a frog that is dropped into boiling water will hop out. But if a frog sits in water that is where the temperature slowly raises, 
they will be they will not notice the change and eventually be boiled to death. And I don't know whether that's true or not, but the metaphor is out there in the world. And de-skilling is that boiling, that slow raising scenario. And if we just let the market decide, we're going to have a bunch of boiled frogs and not be able to recover from that short of violent bloody revolution, which of course is the Marxist response to what may be a capitalist question. If someone who did believe in the free market said, I get it, Chris, I see the risk, but we're going to make everything explainable. So the knowledge isn't going to be lost. We're going to make sure that the, a human can go in and actually understand it. And if there's a problem, kind of be, the AI can tell them how to do it. Does that solve the de-skilling problem? Ah, that is a different question. And one that I'm super excited to talk about, and I'll try and be short this time. I do believe that de-skilling is partially a design problem. We already have models in the world where we work to maintain skills that we're not necessarily using all the time. My husband was telling me on a cruise ship, I've never been on a cruise before, but he has. And he says, one of the first things you do in a large luxury liner is you go to, you come to understand what your muster point is. So if you hear an alarm, everyone knows this is where you go to be counted and get on a lifeboat. How many times does the boat sink? Hopefully never, but you hmm. still have to go through that drill. I believe that we have good models for maintaining skills that are already out there in the world. It gets more fun and nuanced when we talk about software design and AI. But yes, I believe that there are design interventions where we can say, hey, user, you don't have to let the AI handle it. Or you could even be a little more heavy handed and say, right now, we're going to practice this skill. Essentially, it's a fire drill for when the AI goes down. Let's go through that as if the AI weren't here, get even some AI assistance during that phase, and then go on with our day. Of course, we can't do that all the time because then we lose the benefits to efficacy that AI promises. But at least that human has maintained that skill as a fallback. And so I not only fully believe that a lot of de-skilling can be solved with good design, but that it is important and beholden on us as designers to understand those patterns and push for them in the products that we work on hmm. and services. And in fact, in full disclosure, that is what I'm working on at IBM. The, the patterns that we're doing for the software that IBM sells to other companies, very few consumers would know about them because we are a B2B company. But as soon as I have those approved, I'd love to talk about those in detail. But, the, but I can't yet. And the short answer until then is yes. I think a lot of it is a design problem. If you do these uh, drill type of exercises, you also get a degree of understanding of what tasks you have to go in and solve in that software where you explore the different ways of doing the thing without having the AI support you fully. Is that also a way to get to that transparency problem? When you pull the agent out of the equation, yes, it causes a lot of cognitive challenge to the user who's, oh, wait a minute, how did I do this? And that discomfort is what often drives learning in the real world. And boy, howdy, am I not surprised that our conversation is going here because in my work, <laughs> What seems like a simple problem, de-skilling suddenly gets into phenomenology and the way human brains learn. But yes, that is the moment where suddenly you don't have the support and you have to figure it out. I read an article in the last month or so 
where somebody was saying chat GPT can write code. How expert programmer, do you regard that code? And the article was doing a lot of interviewing of programmers and they said, you have to treat it like a junior programmer. Its code is pretty good. A lot of it's cribbed off of the internet, of course. And so you have to be able to evaluate it for soundness. And oftentimes what the human programmer is doing is becoming an architect and putting those pieces together in reasonable ways or effective ways. And, but the interesting bit is that it takes the human expertise in order to evaluate the output of the AI. And I think the big risk when it comes to like formal education is that we start teaching chat GPT or generative code creation from the beginning, because that is where the de-skilling will be systematically enforced. You can't start with the generative AI. You have to start with doing it and knowing it yourself. And then you're like, now you're equipped to work alongside a kind of dumb, but really fast partner who will occasionally need to be slapped down. I have a concern about formal education and how it's going to respond. They're smart people, so I'm sure they're going to respond well. But even in like corporate training, do people say, ah, welcome to your new prompting job, which sounds awful to me. We should apprentice to humans first, get good at the thing. And then the explainability of an AI doesn't become secondary, but it's the human is not dependent on it, right? Oh, I have real world knowledge that I can bring to this. And yeah, the AI can do its best to explain, but the final arbiter of soundness is the human. Seems to me like there needs to be like a cultural almost zeitgeist in order to get to the point where we can have influence higher education to, to do that. It, from my perspective, there are three ways to go about that. Yep. Either we reckon, get together as a society as seven multiple societies, and we decide that we value this and we want to get ahead of this and treat this as a problem and then solve it in maybe the way that you said. Or we have a top-down decision where we realize as a government that if we don't get ahead of this we and clamp down on it, we're basically going to lose all resilience in our societies. Or to me, the last path that we have is chaos and complete and utter. <laughs> How do you see that? Are, am I missing something? Am I too black and white in this? Let me give you the practical short-term answer. I believe both have to happen. And in fact, I hope that you and me and your audience are all getting sensitized to these issues and beginning to push for them from the bottom up, right? which is as good citizens, we should be sensitive about, concerned about, and active towards avoiding de-skilling in the sense of, hey, don't deliberately do this. And even for me individually, how do I make sure that the technologies I'm using are not de-skilling me? I do believe top down, we have to have put some things in place. I would look to the EU as the global leader in this. The EU put the GDPR in place and Boy, howdy, has that not only had effect, but it's got teeth. And for whatever reason, American politics can't seem to do the same thing. 
So I would look to the EU to lead that, saying that if you offer AI augmentation or an AI agent, you have to include upskilling features in that software. And yeah, it sounds super vague. And of course, all the devil's going to be in the details of what does that mean? Mm. How does that work? But I think we have to do it if we're trying to ensure that our labor, that we are humane about labor as a whole. The second big part of the answer that I want to give is partially tied to one of my favorite thinkers on the planet, Genevieve Bell, who's now teaching. She was at Intel. She's now teaching at a university in Australia. And when she gave a talk in Ireland sometime in the past 10 years, it was called Utopia, Dystopia, and Cat Videos. Um, and she went historically through the advent of technologies such as electricity to find examples that at the advent of electricity, there were a lot of thought pieces that either predicted a new golden age because of electricity or the electrification of, in that case, the United States, or a dystopia, which is that, oh, wow, workers won't have to go home at sunset. They're going to be forced to work at all hours of the day. And yet the truth was somewhere in between that utopia and dystopia. Yeah, it certainly did enable working around the clock. Genevieve Bell, she just reminds us that, oh, when she was talking about the internet, she pointed to a bunch of articles about how, the world, oh, universal education is going to make us into a, a golden era. And other people talking about, no, now we're going to enable the worst of the world to find each other and, and set up trafficking networks. And she says, largely, both of those things came true. But the biggest effect is we have this universal information engine and we use it to watch cat videos. She says the prognostications ahead of any technology wind up being more nuanced than we are equipped to foretell. And so I expect the same thing about AI. Like I want to think about both these horrible dystopias where we're all de-skilled and interchangeable cogs in a capitalist engine or the utopia of, wow, we all do the best work and come to be our fully realized selves because these agents are helping us. But the truth is probably going to be somewhere in the middle of some mix of them all. Do you see any positive collaborations between private public sector or groups of private sector who are coming together and starting to get momentum behind this de-skilling? Two answers. The first is uh, I love that ethics are have been on the table for the past 10 years as a major topic and a major concern, and lots of companies are committing to ethical behavior. And I believe that this would be entailed. I'm not an ethics expert, but like I'm aware of the difference between deontological and utilitarian ethics. And I think both of them lead towards the conclusion that we should not de-skill people or give them the option to not de-skill or whatever. That said, we have plenty of examples. And here I would point to the marvelous and unsettling book, The Corporation by Joel Bacan, of corporations entertaining ethical stances as long as it results in profit, and the minute that it no longer results in profit, abandoning those completely. If we are to take Joel Bacan at his word, we cannot depend on the largesse of corporations in order to do that. Certainly other organizations, not-for-profit organizations, may have it written into their charter, but when it comes to the relationship between government and corporate entities, we need to be cautious about thinking of it as a partnership. 
if we believe that government is a stand-in for the best interests of its citizenry, then it needs to have an authoritative relationship to corporations, not a partnership one, because corporations have so much more resources and perverse incentives uh, to do wrong things, whereas governments are ideally structured to have good incentives to do the right things. And they need the authority to be able to say, no, 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 you're doing wrong and not have the break in that relationship cause suffering. Whew, that's a long way to go. But I would say, yeah, I would love to see it happen, but I don't think that we can depend on groups of organizations just doing the right thing because they're good people. Now, this is also coming from a United States CN perspective. The EU is much more of a leader in this way. I think that you have a much better educated and forward-looking citizenry. And the things that I've seen around AI from the EU are much more promising. So there's these different ways that we can help make sure that we're not de-skilled. Mm -hmm. If one of our listeners is there thinking, what can they do as a designer? What are some of the things we can do now without having to hope that the governments get... <laughs> Yeah, it's a great question and ties into that notion of sort of design agency that we talked about before. So certainly I would look for, if I was a designer, not already working on this topic, look for opportunities within the products and services that you design. Are you taking a task over that a user could do or used to do themselves? That's Part one. Part two is, okay, so if now AI is helping them do that thing, how often does the AI go down and what are the consequences when it goes down? There's a, this is a, sorry, I swear to you, I'm going to get back to that thread. But there's another piece of media that came out last year that kind of blew my mind. So there's a children's show out of Australia called Bluey. Are you familiar with it? I see nods. So I, if you don't have a small child around the ages of three to five, you may not have ever heard of it because it's really a show built for them. But it's, it's a, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to fanboy too much. My household loves that show, even though it's really targeted at our five-year-old daughter. But Bluey is a story of a family of dogs living in Australia. I think it's Sydney. And they're just dealing with life as they go. But in one particular episode, and it's, the whole show is told from the children's point of view, so some of the characters never have names other than like Jack's dad. But in this episode, Jack's dad is taking his daughter to go pick up Jack from school. And he gets in the car, he puts his Google Maps on, and he starts following his way to school, and his phone dies. It runs out of battery. doesn't have a charger in the car. And so he pulls over, and he's, oh, crap. And his daughter says, what's the problem? And he says, I don't know how to get there because I just turn on Google Maps and I zone out. And so the entire B plot of this episode is Jack's dad having to not only find his way to school, but refigure out how to find how to get to Jack's school. And it winds up taking him across the outback and they have wonderful adventures and Jack gets picked up roughly on time. Um, but this was an example written in a children's cartoon about de-skilling, right? Jack's dad had pushed off wayfinding to this app. And this story came to a positive conclusion, but not all such stories would. So a check out the episode. I can't remember the name of it. 
but if you search, I think for Jack's dad, it should come up. But anyway, that was a pretty good example of that descaling writ in popular media and shows an example where the consequence was pretty dire or could have been dire. Hmm. So as a designer, look for those opportunities where some your users are handing off a task and where when the supports go down, the consequences are dire. That's the moment where you need to pay attention from a design perspective. That's the opportunity where you can encourage practice. Because if de-skilling is the loss of practice, what do you do to combat that? You provide practice. Just like a fire drill, you occasionally practice the thing in case you need it. How that goes about is going to be particular to the domain of the software, the domain of the service. But we have run already some experiments that show that when you do these interventions, the effects are astonishing mm -hmm. as far as the loss of skills. Find a way to let your users continue practice is the main dictum that is the answer. So I really like that. It's very yeah. clear, actually, the things it is look at what tasks you're handing off and taking away, be conscious of those things, and then ask as a designer, ask what happens if it goes down. Very good principles. If I, this is making sense to me, I can see that uh, applied in, in what I'm working on, actually. Oh, great. It's a great, good, great. Yeah. perspective. Where can I other learnings about how other designers are working with this or how to practically do it? Are there any resources you can recommend? I cannot. When I first running this design for AI Guild across IBM, we asked the question, okay, who has ideas for projects? And I was like, oh, I have one. And that project's been going on now for about a year and a half. But the very first thing that my team did was great. Let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's go out there and find writing on this subject and, and we cannot find it. It could be that our search skills are subpar, but I doubt that we're a bunch of smart people. I don't think there are great resources. All I can say at this point is hang on. No, don't hang on. Go find them. Go write them. Go make them. Let's build a community of practice yeah. around this so that we have good patterns. That said, I am also working on that and I may have a year and a half head start. Hopefully we'll get the approval to share those things because I do think there are patterns, but we're not gurus on a hill. We're just a bunch of smart people thinking about this stuff. So I really hope other people begin to create these, their own patterns and their own resources. But at the moment, we have not found any, mm. which is unsatisfying. But it, for my entrepreneurial spirit, it's also exciting. As designers, we need to have a frame of reference built on literature written on the subject that we can discuss and take further and build off the shoulders of maybe I shouldn't use giants, but at least each other. <laughs> and I think if you, when you've done that, please come on and, and speak about that. And we'll happily market the book as much as we can, because I'm very much excited about that. Yeah. So I hope to be able to come back to you in some near future form to be able to promote that book and get a community of practice going around that, because I think this is a big problem. It's pernicious and we need to solve it at scale. Fantastic. And the previous book, if you want to repeat where we can get our hands on that and what the title is, that would be fantastic because it's a good book. Thank you. There are two. The Both have been published from Rosenfeld Media. The first is Make It So, Interaction Design Lessons from Science Fiction, co-authored with Nathan Shadroff. It's a bit of an old book, but you can also see the website at sci-fi-interfaces.com that I took since publishing the book. And the second book is called Designing Agentive Technologies, AI That Works for People. And it's about that subset of AI that does work for people. It touches 
briefly on the issues, but I didn't have vocabulary around de-skilling. So it will be tightly related to that, but it will definitely be its own big, deep topic. But you can get both at rosenfeldmedia.com. And the first one I haven't looked at yet, so I'll be sure to check that out. Awesome. Oh, awesome. Yeah, just from my perspective, Chris, you've put a label on something or given a clear way that me just in as an individual designer and good citizen can. So I, I think you've really sparked a, a, a interest in me and uh, Jacob. Don't be surprised if you hear us increasingly talking about de-skilling and trying to spread this message because it's really motivating. That's fantastic. Then can I give you one other word mm-hmm. and I'm going to give it to you as a mystery mm-hmm. and let you think on it. But the other word is upskilling. Yeah. And I'm going to be vague, but I think that is going to be part of the answer that mm-hmm. we eventually come to as a community of practice, as we do this design for good. I would, I'll meditate on it. <laughs> awesome. So thank you very much. Fantastic. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Designing the Robot Revolution. If you want to get in touch with us, reach out to us on LinkedIn. That is Jacob Magnell or David Griffith-Jones. If you found this episode interesting, please share it with a friend. If you're interested, stay for a minute or two for some recommendations of science fiction films and books that Chris finds particularly useful and interesting when looking at the phenomenon of de-skilling. Have a great day. Do you have any suggestions for books that could help people understand aspects of what we are talking about when we when it comes to automation and AI? Uh, totally. There's a, I'm not sure it's well known, but E.M. Forster, who wrote all sorts of kinds of stories, but also happened to write a science fiction story that's right on topic called The Machine Stops. And... Like, it's right there in the title. He's writing about a society that has become dependent on a big AI. And one day the AI is no longer there. And the story sort of approaches the consequences that's going to happen to this society that is so totally dependent on the machine. So that is what we're talking about. So it's an older book. And the way that Ian Forster writes science fiction is not in line with our modern tropes or our modern style of science fiction. So it has a historical feel, but nonetheless, I don't know of many other more recent books that deal with it head on. There is a movie, if I can make a movie pitch. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Are you guys familiar with the Mike Judge film, Idiocracy? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So you'll recall the scene and just for the listeners, if they have not seen it, There's a scene where Joe has woken up from a 500-year slumber and he drowsily stumbles into the lobby of St. God's Hospital. And he speaks to the triage nurse there. And her name is Biggies for reasons of comedy. But as he's describing his symptoms, she has this dumb look on her face and her finger is moving over this large panel of icons, which are hilariously designed. And finally, he comes and says, and I'm just really confused. And so her finger drops down on this icon that is a human icon face with question marks over it. And then this little box on her blouse says, head to bay three or whatever it is. Have a healthy day. 
So she doesn't even have to say anything, but he confusedly walks away. And the thing that struck me about this scene when I saw it, and it really stuck with me, I couldn't stop thinking about it, was that device would pass a usability test. Hmm. Right? If you said, hey, did you find the button okay? Did the did your served customer get what they need? All the answer is yes. But that system keeps biggies stupid. Hmm. And that's a problem. We were just talking about design agency and my brain was going, how would I solve this from a design perspective? And I'm pleased to say that I'm actually able to do that as part of my work. But that scene, I think, is also another, a different medium than the Forster book, but a really good intro or sensitization to issues that we're talking about today. Mm. Idiocracy and the machine stops. So, Jacob, it's a couple of weeks ago that we spoke with Chris. What a conversation. Yeah, I I just listened through it, and it's one of those conversations where you can tell that he's been thinking about this a lot, Uh, and he's a sharp guy, and I I really enjoyed that conversation. It was a, a, a blast. Yeah, I came away from it feeling really motivated that we designers can do something about this i yeah. think it's easy to feel powerless sometimes when you see these big headlines about jobs being taken and all the kind of negative things about the potential damage that ai progress can do but this really made me feel we can do something about this and just by being conscious of the threat of de-skilling and when you're doing an ai initiative to call those things out bring visualize what 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 impact it's going to have in terms of this automated service is going to take away certain skills and make sure those are seen, make it visible. That's something we can and should be doing. And I, I found that just very motivating. I think you're you're right on the money there. I think just being aware of things is is the key here because I did not think about de-skilling before I heard Chris talk about it uh, a couple of months back now. And it's such a sneaky little concept. It kind of, it's not, as as Chris said in the interview, it's not about the the big headlines and the loss of job. It's actually about our ability over generations to do things. Yeah, I mean, he said civil, civilization is a de-skilling machine. This is a natural part, but mm. what's different this time? is that it's to do with knowledge. And so we are going to be, if we're automating these knowledge roles, these tasks that currently knowledge workers are doing, we run a severe risk of losing that knowledge for good. So we need to actually, and as Chris alludes to at the end of the interview, it's not just, don't just think about de-skilling, think about how when you're doing these initiatives, you can actually use it to upskill. So we actually make sure that the people mm. who are working have the competence, the workforce, the business, the organization keeps these skills, these knowledges, because we have to be resilient for if things go down or be prepared um, for all the scenarios that could happen once you have more automation in place. Yeah, and I think also there's an aspect of quality. Because we have to be skilled enough to be aware of how something is created that is good. If we take just writing a simple text about something, it takes a lot of training. We, we, we need to write consistently. 
And I think already people are writing and reading less than maybe they need to in order to be very proficient and be very productive in this field. And in order to control the AI and use it as a tool, as a, as a maybe a partner in, in these tasks, we have to make a conscious effort to actually put down those keys on the keyboard and, and write things. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we can learn that in other ways. Maybe um, verbal communication, verbal, the, the telling of a story will become, but then it's a storytelling issue. So we need to figure out how that can, how that can look. And I think, as you said, design is definitely the way to go. That's the way how we get to a place where we can do this For really sure. well. It's interesting, isn't it, that this is this IBM have clearly developed their thinking in this. They seem to be really on the front foot, which isn't mm. a surprise when you look at the pedigree and heritage of IBM when it comes to AI. But no. if you think about it now, so many more companies, almost every organization now is a creator of AI and automation. And so yeah. it has the same challenges. And so we all organizations need to develop their thinking, I would suggest, in line with the likes of IBM to account for these types of considerations. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, a, a lot of skilled workers in industry are going to retire within the next 10 to 15 years if we replace a lot of their tasks with them overseeing automated tasks. We're going to end up in a situation in 10 years where we don't have those workers, as, as Chris was talking about. Uh, I think that's a really likely scenario that we're going to end up in a situation where we can't really do that uh, quality mm -hmm. control uh, within just a couple of years. Thanks again. So, listeners, if you, what are your reflections? Do you see how this could be something that you bring into your work? Let us know. Get in touch with Jacob or I via LinkedIn. And if you like this episode, feel free to share it with as many friends as you like. That's the best way that you can support our podcasts. Uh, you have been listening to Designing the Robot Revolution with me, Jacob Magnol. And me, David Griffith-Jones. Have a wonderful day.